Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, it's page 958 of your pew Bible. And follow along as I read verses 1 through 6, please. Matthew 5, starting verse 1 through 6. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Thank you, Steve. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear Lord, we praise you for this opportunity for us to gather and to look at your word. God, we know that your word is the primary vehicle through which you bring transformation in our lives. And that is what we seek, Lord. We seek to leave here as different people than we were when we walked in. And we know that can only happen through the work of your spirit. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would tell us, teach us, work on our hearts, communicate to us what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to start by just thanking uh, the many of you who helped to put Resurrection Week on uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we had, it started of course with Easter, where we had a, a great uh, Easter service. We had a, a special time where the, the children's ministry they were involved and they did a skit up here and that was exciting for a number of reasons. One, because we, we didn't really have any kids in the last couple of years, so it's wonderful to have some children and they were able to be a part of the service. I want to thank those who were involved in putting that on. A special thanks to Mary Martinez, who she designed and built the whole stage setting in the background, which was just really beautiful. So thank you so much. Uh, Carol Savoy, of course, for your leadership with the children's ministry and all the other workers there. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and then we had a great week. That was just the beginning. We kicked it off with that, and then we had a, a worship night, a praise night on Wednesday night, which, was, uh, which went really well. We had it downstairs. It was a very intimate kind of worship setting. I want to thank the musicians, thank all of you for being a part of that and for the time and work that you put into that. Uh, we had a number of service outreach opportunities, which were available uh, as well. So thank you to Hetty and to Rosemary and the other people involved in the service outreach team that helped to kind of put those things together. And then, of course, it all culminated in our Easter party, right? We figure, why not just, why have it not have an Easter party? We have a Christmas party. Why does Christmas get all the press, right? I, not that I'm a, I love Christmas. We should make a big deal about Christmas, but we should also make a big deal about Easter, right? So this was, so we had this, uh, this, this Easter party called Foretaste, and the idea was that the Bible uses this imagery when it talks about the age to come, it uses the imagery of a feast, and so we're like, well, let's have a feast that, that it sort of anticipates as a foretaste of the feast to come, right? So that's what this was, this was all about. Well, what is Resurrection Week all about? Resurrection Week is about celebrating the fact that in Jesus Christ, there is a new life that we can enter into. Resurrection Week is about this reality that God has come. He has come into this world and there is this, this new life that is available to us because of what he has done. Today we are beginning a, a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. 
And the Sermon on the Mount really is, is essentially a, a, a body of teaching. It is Jesus' largest body of teaching in the scriptures. It, it's comprised of three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's certainly probably the most famous teaching uh, that Jesus has. And really what it is, is it is an announcement that the kingdom of God has come, that this, that this new life is available. And it's important for us to see it as this, as an announcement that God's new life has broken into this world, that the kingdom of God has broken into this world. It is in many respects a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We see when Jesus is announcing, particularly in these first uh, 11 verses, first 10 verses, the, the Beatitudes, these really are, they point to a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, that, that he's, he's announcing that the kingdom has come. And there are a lot of passages in the Old Testament which point to this. One in particular that I think serves as sort of the backdrop for what Jesus is saying is Isaiah chapter 61. And let me just read for you Isaiah 61. Isaiah, who was prophesying some 800 years before the coming of Jesus, and he prophesied to the people of Israel. He said, he said things are not going to go well for us because we've turned away from God. Uh, so things aren't going to go well. We're, we're going to be sent into exile. Uh, we're going to be separated from God, and things are not going to go well for us. He said, but there's going to come a time when God is going to return. God is going to forgive us of our sin, and the, and the, the difficulties, the challenges which we are dealing with, which in, in, it was basically referring to the, the foreign oppression that they had. They came under the rule of, of different uh, foreign governments over a period of years, and they became the victims in many ways of various forms of social oppression, and even social oppression that they were causing amongst their own people. And so the prophets were longing for this day when the kingdom of God would return, when, when God would come and he would renew and he would, he would make things right. And this is what Isaiah says in chapter, chapter 61. He says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. And he's proclaiming this time when God will come. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, if you were here last week when my brother preached on Luke chapter 4, we saw that in Luke chapter 4, Jesus actually goes to the synagogue and he reads this very passage. And then what does he say? He says, well, this passage is now fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying this is now coming true. And we see that this then is the backdrop for the Sermon on the Mount, the background for the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying I, the kingdom has come for them. The kingdom of God has come for those who are, are hurting, right? It says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who long for righteousness, blessed are those who are longing for this day when God will come and his kingdom will break into this world. And so, so what we need to see here is that the, the Sermon on the Mount, beginning here with the Beatitudes, it is an announcement that the kingdom of God has broken into this world in a new way. 
It's important for us to understand that because uh, what this is not, Jesus is not simply giving us timeless truths on how to tap into the goodness of reality. Jesus is not just proclaiming uh, wisdom on how you can sort of tap into the inherent goodness of the universe. He's not talking about how you can tap into uh, the, the timeless reality of heaven. This, this is not good advice on simply how to tap into the, the reality that's around us and within our midst. Uh, this is not uh, some sort of philosophical treatise about how you can tap into the goodness of this universe. In other words, you cannot take the teachings of Jesus, you cannot take the Sermon on the Mount and place it alongside the teachings of Buddha or Plato or any other uh, a philosopher or spiritual teacher who tries to proclaim how you can sort of tap into uh, the goodness of, of reality. That's, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is making an announcement. He's saying, no, the kingdom of God is breaking into a world in a new way. Um, uh, another way of saying this is that Jesus is Jewish. Amen. Jesus is Jewish. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but that actually has some pretty significant implications that Jesus is Jewish. Because that means that Jesus thought as a Jew would have thought. He, he, he thought the way a biblical Jew would have understood the world. And a biblical Jew did not think that, well, you just needed to tap into the spiritual reality, this universal spiritual reality that was around you. No, the, the biblical worldview was that God created the world. He created it good. But we had turned away from God. We had rebelled against God, and sin have, has come into the world. So you're not, you don't try to tap in to that reality. It's, it's a fallen world, and so what you need is not to tap into that. You need for God to return. You need for his kingdom to, kingdom to come. To be honest with you, if we just wrapped our minds around this, this idea of Jesus being Jewish and thinking like a Jew, it actually takes about 100 and 150 years of bad liberal Christian scholarship and just makes it irrelevant. Because at the heart of a lot of bad liberal Christian scholarship is really an attempt to de-Judaize Jesus. You see, if you can make Jesus less Jewish... Then you can just put them alongside Plato and Buddha and, and anybody else and say that they're all just trying to talk about different ways of tapping into this, this reality, right? Well, let me share, share with you, I watched this. I'm embarrassed to admit that I watched this movie. It was so terrible. Uh, I love terrible movies for some reason, but this one was really bad. Let me explain to you the premise of this movie. I assure you, you've never heard of it. It was on Netflix. I don't know why. Okay. Uh, so here's the premise of the movie. There is this guy, uh, and he, well, he's actually a, a caveman living in the present time. He's been alive for 50,000 years. Okay? I mean, that's why I went for it. I'm like, I have to see this, right? And here's the thing about him is that he, he, he's like 44 years old, and something happened at age 44, and he stopped aging. Uh, so what he's realized is that every 10 years... He has to move somewhere else, otherwise people will start to figure that something's up. So he's been doing this for 50,000 years. Finally, he's like, you know what, I'm so sick of this. He's kept this secret for 50,000 years. I mean, that's pretty good. And uh, he's a college professor at this point. And so finally, it's, it's been 10 years, and he's, getting, he's just quit his job. 
And, but he's like, I've had it with this. I'm going to let these people know. So he invites his college professors over to his house. And he, he, says to, he explains to them. He says, look, here's the deal. I'm, I'm 50,000 years old. And then here's what he says. He says, I spent the first 45,000 years of my life just accumulating uh, wisdom, coming to understand the world and the nature of the world. And then about 2,500 years ago, I went into northern India and I started to proclaim my wisdom, my timeless wisdom, and this, this new religion just, just grew out of it in northern India. And then he says, 500 years later, I, I ended up in Palestine. And I went around Palestine, and I started proclaiming the same timeless wisdom that I had proclaimed uh, back in, in, in India. But they completely misunderstood me, and they crucified me. Now, this was not supposed to be a comedy. But I fell out of my sofa laughing. I didn't know you could fall out of a sofa. I, I, I was laughing so hard, because here's, let me, let me just put it this way. I don't know if there are 50,000-year-old cavemen wandering around Manhattan, but here's the one thing that I do know. Jesus was not Buddhist. Jesus was not Buddhist. He wasn't going around proclaiming timeless wisdom about how you can tap into uh, this reality, this timeless reality. That, that's not a Jewish way of thinking at all. He was announcing that working within this framework that God had created the universe good, but we have turned away from God and we've rebelled against him. And so now what we need is not to tap into this world. What we need is for God to return. We need for God to come and renew. We don't need enlightenment. We need salvation. And so that's what we find here in the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is announcing that God has returned, that this new life, this new kingdom is now available, and that if we, if we enter into it, it can, it can transform us. It can take us from life to life 2.0. Uh, it can take us from this. You guys remember these? To this. Right? I mean, think about it. Every day, somebody walks into Apple, the Apple store, with one of these and trades it in, gets an upgrade, transforms into this. I know that when I did, it changed my life. But imagine, imagine if you were the phone. Imagine what a transformation that would be. If you went from being this to this. Now, this is the kind, okay, this is a silly, I'm sorry, but you have to deal with it because it's the whole series. You're going to be dealing with this for three months. That's my illustration there is that we've been offered this new life. That God takes our old life, and as we enter into this newly available kingdom, that we can begin to experience life in a way that we have not before. So uh, that, that we're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount for the next three months, and we're just going to be talking about this new life that is available for us to have access to because God has entered into this world. We're going to be launching our community group ministry again here in the next couple of weeks. Beginning next week, we're going to have an opportunity to sign up for the community groups, and then, then we're going to launch them. And really, the, the entire purpose of these community groups is precisely to give us an opportunity to explore how to enter into this new life. That as we gather together with, with other believers who are, who are seeking to understand what Jesus has done and to pursue that, to challenge one another that we can begin to experience this life more and more. Now, what is 
at the heart of this new life. There are many characteristics to this new life, but there is one characteristic in particular that emerges in this passage, that at the very heart of this new life that is being announced is simply this. Happiness. At the very core of this new life that Jesus is bringing to us is happiness. Jesus mentions happiness, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. And I think nine verses. You see, the word blessed really just means happy. It just means happy. He's saying happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn, happy are the meek, on and on and on. He's saying that this new life that I have announced, that I have brought, that at the very core characteristic of this is happiness. Uh, My wife and I, are coming up on our our fifth year wedding anniversary in June. And one of the things that we've discovered, and we knew this was going to be the case, is that that marriage is, it's a matter of ups and downs. It's highs and lows. That the highs are are higher than anything you have when you're single, uh, and the lows are lower than anything you had when you were single. And we remember one point, this was early in our marriage, our first year of marriage, uh, this was before we came up here, because everything's been perfect since we've been here. Uh, right. Our first year of marriage, we're in one of those low points. And so we start reading this book on marriage. And the, the, the main point of this book on marriage was this. It says that the purpose of marriage, God's reason for marriage, is not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. That the primary purpose of marriage is not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. That God brings you together in order to refine you, to teach one another, to reveal more clearly who you are, to, to just to help you to see who you are and to refine one another and to encourage one another and to push one another, to encourage you to become more Christ-like. That, that in a sense, that's what, what marriage is about. It's about holiness, not happiness. And I remember we were, re- we were reading through this, and my wife gave me permission to share this illustration, to share this story. <clears throat> we're reading through this, and it's just talking about how it's about holiness, not happiness. And all of a sudden, my wife, God bless her, breaks down in tears and says, I don't want to be holy. I just want to be happy. <laughs> Honey, I think this passage is your vindication. Because God does want us to be happy. Of course, we are going to see as we move through this that it is uh, very closely connected to holiness. We're going to see that. They're closely connected. But for our purposes today, I just want us to see that God does desire for us to experience happiness. My prayer is that as we go through this, as we we unpack this, that, that... as we pursue what this new life is about, that we can come to experience the happiness that comes from the kingdom of God. And so that's the sort of first characteristic, but the question that I think this also addresses, the primary, well, one of the questions this addresses, is not just what is a characteristic of this new life, but how do we enter into it? How do we, what's sort of the first step? How do we enter into this new life that God has brought? And the answer is, is another way of saying it is, how do we enter into this happiness that God has for us? And I think what we discover in this passage is simply this. Brokenness leads to happiness. Brokenness 
leads to happiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is talking about those who are broken, those who are broken before God. Brokenness leads to happiness. Now, we need to back up here for a minute, because we need to remind ourselves once again that this passage... um, is actually not primarily about how to enter into the kingdom. It's primarily simply an announcement that the kingdom of God has come. In this sense, it is more descriptive than it is prescriptive. He's describing, he's basically saying, look, if you are poor in spirit, if you are mourning, if you are meek, if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, there is good news for you because God has come. And when we see that, when we see that this is an announcement, a declaration of the coming of the kingdom of God, uh, one of the things that this helps us to see is the holistic picture of brokenness that Jesus has in mind here. Uh, What tends to happen is if we don't see it this way, we tend to over-spiritualize the Beatitudes and we see them simply as a, a required heart attitude or required disposition of the heart that is necessary to enter into the kingdom. And we're going to see that it does point to that. But that's not primarily what it's saying. It's simply an announcement that if you are in this situation that, well, that, that God has come for you, and that allows us to see the holistic nature of this, this brokenness. So one of the things that we, we need to realize, again, the context, this is a fulfillment of the, the, the prophecies that came in the Old Testament where Isaiah, well, they're longing for a day when God would bring justice. Right, so you see, a hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that certainly can be a matter of hungering and, and thirsting for your own personal holiness, but it's also a longing for God to make things right in this world. Uh, mourning, mourning over your sin, which certainly it can be that as well, but it can also be, as I think it is in Isaiah, it's also not just a mourning for our sin, but a mourning for God to come and make things right. They're all interconnected because Isaiah realizes that the reason why everything's God bad is because they've sinned. So it's all wrapped up together, but it's a mourning and a longing for God to come and to make things right. So another way of saying this is that really the first... Uh, at least, especially the first four Beatitudes are really just a description of, of, of hard times. It's just people who are experiencing hard times. And what Jesus is saying is that if you are experiencing hard times, God has come for you. Maybe you are here today and you are experiencing hard times. Maybe you are here today, and for you, it really is a matter of your, of your own sin. You're, you're, you're seeing that your own sin is causing all kinds of, of problems in your life. Maybe it's an issue of anger. Maybe it's a, an, an issue of, of a temper that you can't control, and that's causing all kinds of, of damage in your relationships. No, maybe, uh, maybe it's an issue of bitterness that you harbor towards someone that's, that's there, and, and you need somehow to, to, come over, to, to get over that Jesus is announcing, he's saying, God has come for you. God has come to bring you deliverance. Maybe you're here today and, and, and you're struggling financially. Maybe you are here and you just lost your job and you're in this place where, boy, you don't know what to do and, and, and you're, you're broken before God. Well, well, God is saying, I have come to you. I, I will come. I, I will 
Come and bring deliverance. Now, one of the things that we need to see about the nature of the kingdom of God is the nature of the kingdom of God is already not yet. Already not yet. And what that means is that the struggles that we have, there is this guarantee that if we turn to God, He will make things right. Sometimes He'll make it right today. But oftentimes, He won't make it right until tomorrow. Sometimes he'll make it right today. Sometimes he'll make it right tomorrow. Sometimes he'll make it right in this life. And sometimes he'll make it right in the next life. But what we know, what Jesus is announcing is that whatever it is, he says, I have come for you. I have come for you and and I will make things, I will make things right. So we need to see it's, it's descriptive. He's announcing this good news that... Whatever you're dealing with, I have come for you, but, but, if you don't recognize your need for God, then you never will enter into this life. Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. He's saying, look, if if you don't think you need anything, I haven't come for you. You see, if you want to enter in the life 2.0, it begins with this posture of humility, of recognizing that you need God. See, in this sense, it doesn't really matter whether you're experiencing brokenness or not. It doesn't matter, for example, if you are in the midst of poverty or you are doing very well. Actually, it's really the same prayer for either person if they're really broken before God. The person who is who is truly in poverty and is longing for God to help them and to, to, to rescue them, to deliver them, well, that, that's a person who is, who is praying, God, deliver me, I need your help. The person who's doing well, maybe you, you've, you know, you've got a great job and you've got making plenty of money and everything's going well in your life, your prayer is actually quite sim- is very similar. Your prayer is, God, protect me, take care of me. Because what I realize is that everything that I have is a gift from you. And like that, it could be gone. Right? Even my abilities to do the things that I do that maybe have gotten me where I am, they, it all comes from you. So in humility, I come before you and I just, I say in brokenness, God, I need you to sustain me, to care for me, to protect me, to look out for me. You see, it's the same posture of humility either way you go. It's a humility... I think this is what it's talking about when it talks about blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I think it, it primarily here, if, if we're talking about a hard disposition, it could very well be talking about someone who is, who is in need, maybe physically or emotionally or whatever. And, and actually, I think there's a parallel here. We can take uh, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the third beatitude, blessed are the meek. I think there's actually a parallel there, and they're really probably just talking about the same sort of thing. This is a person uh, who, well, they're on hard times, and so they, they need God's help. Or there's somebody who maybe is doing well, but they realize, again, if it's a hard disposition, it's someone who realizes that, that I, I, I need you, God. There's a second kind of brokenness. And that's the brokenness that we find in verses and verses 6. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When we see this as a heart disposition of brokenness, then what this is talking about 
is it is mourning over your own sin. It's hungering and thirsting for you to live a different way. It's hungering and thirsting for God's grace and His mercy and His forgiveness to come into your life and, and to, to, change, to change the way that you live. It's, it's that kind of brokenness. I think what we find in here, I, I've, I've sort of mentioned this before, there are two kinds of brokenness before God. There's being broken before the sovereignty of God and there's being broken before the holiness of God. To be broken before the sovereignty of God is once again to recognize, boy, everything that I have, my house, my family, all of that, it all came from Him. I didn't, I didn't do anything to deserve any of this. It's certainly not because of my abilities, because He gave me my abilities. So even the things that I have, I am, I am broken before you. And of course, if things aren't going well, then you're broken before the sovereignty of God. But then there's the brokenness before the holiness of God. And that's realizing that you stand before a God in whose presence you don't deserve to stand. You don't deserve any of the things that He's given you. And in fact, even in those moments when you begin to see growth and you begin to walk and you begin to overcome areas of sin in your life, you're still broken before God because you realize it's not anything that you did. It's entirely the work of the Spirit in your life. What Jesus is saying here is that if you are to enter into life 2.0, you must be broken before the sovereignty and the holiness of God. We're now come to our time of communion. The ushers would come forward. Communion is an opportunity for us to come broken before God. It's an opportunity for us to enter into life 2.0 by coming before God and saying, God, I need you. I need you to protect me. I need you to look out for my physical needs. I, I need you to look out for my spiritual needs. Lord, I need you to forgive me. You see, a person who's truly broken before the holiness of God is a person who really understands the need for the cross. You see, I, I think if you, if you try to explain to somebody that what is the purpose of the cross? I think the reality is, is that if somebody just gets their brokenness before God, their lack of, of holiness before God, then the cross just makes sense. It just makes sense because there's no other religion, there's no other worldview where so clearly proclaims that God is offering you forgiveness and it's not just some nice idea that God loves you and forgives you, but it became a historical reality in Jesus that God came into this world and he died on a cross for you. And when you're really broken before the holiness of God, the cross just makes sense. And so as we come before the table, it's an opportunity for us to be broken before God and to begin to enter into life 2.0. Let's pray for the elements. Dear Lord, we praise you that you have not left us here in this broken world. Lord, we praise you that you have come for us. The prophet Isaiah foretelling this time when you would come. The people of God longing for this time when you would come. Lord, we praise you that now we can enter into this life in part now in anticipation of what is to come. 
Lord, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that this brokenness would be the foundation of everything that we have in this church. Lord, I pray that this brokenness would be the foundation of this community group ministry which we are launching, Lord, that we would come together as those who know that we are broken. So, Lord, now as we come before the table, Lord, Lord, we pray that in faith as we take these elements that we would receive your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness, that even right now we would begin to experience that life that you have come to bring us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.